Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a large variety of genres, and you can play them on any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you got. And here's a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Hitch 22, the memoir by the late, great Christopher Hitchens, or how about The Golden Age, a novel by the late, great Gore Vidal, or how about Schopenhauer in 90 Minutes, if you want to brush up on your Schopenhauer, that's by Paul Strathairn. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge, and if you do this, if you get the free audiobook, it helps the program, I get a little kickback, that's sort of nice. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people, Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a full-fledged listening experience. This is also, for me, a bit of a talking experience. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. I do appreciate it. Uh, what can I tell you? I am a little bit freaked out right now. Uh, I have a suspicious mole. It's on my clavicle. It's sort of pink. Uh, it might not even really be a mole because it's sort of pink. It's about the size of a very small pencil eraser. It's not the size of a pencil eraser, but it's pencil eraser-ish. Maybe uh, you know half of a pencil eraser. It's it's slightly, ever so slightly raised up, and I think it's kind of itchy. Unless that's all in my head. And I made the mistake uh, of googling skin cancer earlier this morning, and have subsequently spent the entire rest of my day in a state of dread and low-level panic worried that I am dying. Uh, it's never a good idea to Google anything medical online, ever, uh, or almost ever. And uh, I did also, just for the record, make an appointment with a dermatologist, uh, just in case. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not taking any chances here. It could be something. It could be nothing. I don't know. Uh, but I'm going to find out. And uh, 
Yeah. You know, like I, like I never go out in the sun anymore either, I should say. I'm a shut-in, essentially. Uh, like, not really, but kind of. And I certainly don't walk around with my shirt off. And, uh, you know, but when I was younger, this was not the case. I was more carefree. I was more nonchalant in my approach to radiation. Uh, but, of course, all of that has changed over time. And I can only hope uh, that this is nothing, that I'm freaking out for no good reason, that my Google-induced day of mortal fear has been entirely unnecessary, uh, and I will keep you posted. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Carl Taro Greenfeld. He is an accomplished journalist who has written for The Nation magazine, Time magazine, and Sports Illustrated. Uh, he's authored six books, including the brand new Triburbia, a novel now available from Harper. He's an interesting guy. He's led an interesting life. He's had an interesting career. He's lived in other countries. He's worked in other countries. He's had some fascinating and sometimes extreme experiences. And he and I are going to talk about all of it right now. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Carl Taro Greenfeld. Uh, yeah, I've been around. I mean, this was, yeah, I mean, because I, I, uh, I was a journalist. I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for so long. And I traveled, uh, and for work, I would, I, you know, I would, I would, I, I had to travel. And I lived for a long time in, in Tokyo. That's what my first book was about. And then I lived in, uh, uh, in Hong Kong. I was running a mag, I ran a magazine in Tokyo. I ran a magazine in, in Hong Kong. And lived, you know, just all points in between, and and kept going back. And I I launched a magazine in Beijing, Sports Illustrated China. So I just had, had a whole range of international experience, mostly in the Far East. And so that's why a lot of my short fiction, and 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 journalism was always set there. My first two books were were, were set in first three books were set in 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 the Far East. So I that was that's always been the 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 sort of I've, my, most of my international sort of postings have always been in the Far East, but I've I've gone all around. Uh, my wife is German, so we spend a lot of time uh, in Europe and, and the Netherlands and Belgium, where her family's kind of situated. So so I have a pretty good range of, of of international experience, and I draw from that all the time, especially in in writing short stories. I find. Uh, why is that? I mean, just because, uh, I mean, w what about the form lends itself well to kind of melding with travel experiences? Well, uh, this is, I mean, really, I mean, years ago, I would write most of these things and, and publish them as, as fiction, excuse me, as nonfiction. 
so a lot of my journalism and in my first two books of, of, of which are journals which are, which are published as nonfiction are sort of very I guess they, they I would term them creative nonfiction in that it was very narrative driven short pieces like 5,000 word pieces about Japan or about Southeast Asia or about China and and they very much had a short story arc I was finding characters and then getting into their history and their backstory and then sort of omnisciently recreating their their lives and in you know through scenes and dialogue and it for, for I, I considered it journalism but I think you could easily have have accused me of you know doing some kind of of non-journalistic practices in there and this was this was in in the 90s and I think that one of the things that happened was that I think the 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 definition of journalism has become a little bit stricter and a little bit more restrictive in terms of what you can get away with. And so I, I began, so a couple things happened. I began to become more of a mainstream journalist in that I got a job at Time Magazine, became a writer for Time Magazine, where a lot of the narrative liberties I was taking in terms of forming my stories would no longer be permitted. You couldn't get away with that shit at Time Magazine. You know what I mean? Time Magazine is more, much more straightforward. So. I was no longer able to sort of write the elaborate and sort of fanciful narratives that I was writing in my journalism prior to that point. So looking for that kind of creative outlet for my work, and, and because I like writing stories, I, you know, I, I love, I, I love, I've always been a narrative writer and, 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 and looking to, in order to keep doing that, I had to switch to fiction. And so I think, strangely enough, most of my, almost all of my first stories are set in the Far East, and, and I think what I was doing is, is, is doing the same sort of work that I used to do in my journalism and nonfiction, only now I was just calling it fiction. It's just a ma really a, a matter of labeling more than anything else, and then publishing it as fiction. I mean, certainly once I was no longer worried about passing myself, passing my work off somehow as nonfiction or to be acceptable as nonfiction. I was able to take more liberties in the narrative and make the stories better. But really, it was just sort of to satisfy a creative yen that I just began writing fiction because I could no longer satisfy that in nonfiction. I mean, a few things happened. There were writers getting in trouble all the time, sort of starting, I guess, in around, I mean, with Stephen Glass, when was that, the late 90s? that guy from the New Republic who was uh, fabricating stories. And so writers began to get in trouble for making stuff up. So I was like, first of all, I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> so I thought I got to straighten my act out, you know, before I, before I get busted. So I switched and began writing more nonfiction, uh, and, excuse me, began writing more fiction. And my nonfiction became very, you know, all the nonfiction I published since then, or most of it anyway, has been very strictly... Uh, you, you, journalistically kosher. Well, and it's it, but it's. I mean, the, you talk about the blurring of the lines and the and the, and the process of labeling, and uh, I think it is true that there's such a uh, there's such a fine line, you know, drawn between fiction and nonfiction, oftentimes. And uh, obviously, I mean, there is like a just the facts journalism um, that I think. Uh, sort of stands up on his own, but you know, you think about like the new journalists, and you think about um, so much of what we read, and you, you do have to wonder. And, and you also, I mean, I also find myself wondering, um, I don't know, uh, how much it matters in certain instances. You know, I guess in, in 
like a political context, for an example, like you obviously don't want somebody taking creative liberties, you know, if you're trying to, f- to figure out what's happening. But, uh, yeah, I, I think we know. I think when you're dealing with issues of state, with issues of, of, of legal matters, political matters, issues that affect the population or affect the, you know, the, the state security, national security, I think then you do want there to be a New York Times standard of, of rigorous uh, sourced journalism, and there is a place for that. And I would never pretend that there's no difference between that and some of the stuff I was doing. But I always viewed the kind of nonfiction I was writing as being primarily entertainment. I didn't see it as acting, you know, sort of as, as, as educational material or, or that I was covering or unveiling state secrets or anything like that. I was really just writing stories that I thought people would love reading. And so I think, I mean, that's really the difference. I think when you're, when you're reading nonfiction, where part of the enjoyment is in the actual writing and telling of the tale and the experience you're having as a reader as you go along, that's a fundamentally different experience than reading a story where what matters is the information. What matters is that the Supreme Court has ruled five to four in favor or against this particular case it's just two different experiences right. and i think I, I think i don't think you can you can even equate the two and and i find it unfortunate when all of nonfiction is held to the standard of of, of strict and rigorous sourced honesty because it, or it, because I, I think you're 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 losing something very fundamental which is once something is written on the page once something is, 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 is published, it also is going to function, or it, it, it can also function as a kind of art. And the best journalism and the best nonfiction, or the, the, what I consider the best, has always functioned as art. It's a kind of art. And I think one of the, one of the great misfortunes of living in the Internet age is that journalism has become much more closely held. It's, it, journalists are much more careful. They're not willing to, to take chances. They're not as expansive in their storytelling because everyone is so afraid of getting caught. Okay. Everyone's so afraid that they're going to make some mistake and they're going to get you're going to get in trouble. So, so you know, you look at the great stories of the past. You look at Tom Wolfe and 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 the Pump House Gang and and some you know Joan Didion and all, all this stuff. I mean, was that stuff really a hundred percent on the button? You know, factually accurate. Um, Maybe, maybe not. I don't give a shit. I don't think it matters. But the point is, today, would some of that stuff be picked apart in a completely different way than when it was published, when very likely the, the kids in La Jolla, who the Pump House Gang were about, probably never even read that story? Right. You know, now you, like, now you know any story you write, the people who you write about are going to see it immediately. And if there's any problems in it, you're going to hear about it. The first, you know, the first years of my career as a writer... Right, publishing in, in, in American magazines, nobody I wrote about probably ever even read my stories. The people in the stories probably never even saw them because the Internet didn't exist, and how are they going to get a copy of, of, of you know, Details or Vogue or whatever it was? And so it's just a, it's just a very different time in terms of, of how careful you should be as a journalist and how careful I am when I'm writing nonfiction. I'm just very aware, okay, I have to play by this set of rules, which is, which is a... You know, which requires that I be much more factually uh, precise. That I, you know, make sure that 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 um, you know that 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 the 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 chronology isn't 
somehow manipulated to create an impression uh, of events that, that, that may not have happened as, as I've laid them out. I, I think that, you know, those, those kind of things, which I was much more comfortable with doing earlier in my career, chronology is a great way to manipulate a story. Um, that kind of thing now, I ha- you know, I have to be more careful about, and, that, and that's why in order to sort of satisfy my urge to tell, to tell stories, I, I switched over and began writing fiction. Well, no, and it's interesting to hear you say that because, like, it, it sounded when you first said it a little bit counterintuitive. This idea that journalism has somehow um, become more formalized or more careful in the age of the internet, because um, I think a lot of people would say that, like, you know, journalism has actually gotten less careful in the age of the internet because you know anybody can sort of call themselves a journalist, and there's the rise of the blogosphere and all this other stuff. But um, you know, well, it, it, that's a good point. I mean, I think. Well, there's different standards still. I mean, we understand that something written, you know, on on a small blog or on on a on, you know not heavily trafficked blog, just has a different standard of veracity than than something that's published in a, in a mainstream publication. We just accept that for one thing, because if something's on a blog or something's online, it can be changed immediately, right? So there isn't nearly as much uh, worry about uh, you know about libel and being sued because. You can just change it, um, and so it's you know in, in some ways I think it's it's less the uh, the the onus is is a little bit less on the the writer to get things exactly right because they can just fix it later. But the the the, the problem is any it, there's also much because that same that same scrutiny also makes the writer much more much less willing to take the risks in storytelling that we may well that, that that I think we were willing to take in a previous time because now you know once i publish this everyone's going to look at it everyone's going to see it and here's this one area which is god it's a great scene and it's really good but i'm a little squishy about it like i mean you know i mean it might not really have played the way i've written it in the past you'd be like or i would have been like oh fuck it i'm just going to run it because it's so good now you do it and you would know you're just going to hear from people bitching about it and complaining and then they're going to start you know you know shooting darts at you so you're going to so 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 I'll be like you know what I'm just not going to put that in I'm just going to do the more boring story because it's it's less bother yeah well no it it almost like makes me makes me think that there should be like a new genre like I almost wish there was a signifier so that I could know I was reading something by uh, a journalist, or I was reading something that has like strong nonfiction qualities. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, uh, well, I think that, I think I mean there is. It's, it's memoir. Yeah. I mean, I think mem- memoir is understood to be uh, an area that is. I mean, despite you know the memoir police who occasionally come out when when someone's perceived <laughs> to have gone too far right. in, in in making stuff up, like James Fry. I mean, and, you know, like the character in my book. I, I think the the we understand that memoir is anything that's, that's, that's filtered through one person's experience and largely a collection of memories is, is inherently flawed. It's, it's inherently not accurate. It's, in, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's basically just one person's version of events. And, and, and so I think we, we, we accept memoir as being an in-between area most of the time. But sometimes you still get people get in trouble for it. And it's a little bit arbitrary why one guy gets in trouble and another person doesn't. James Fry gets in trouble and David Sedaris doesn't. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I thought about that a lot when uh, the whole James Fry thing went down. Like, there had to have been so many um, memoirists, and particularly memoirists like a huge readership and with a lot, you know, with a lot more at stake who must have been a little bit nervous. <laughs> so everyone was nervous. I mean, you know, everyone gets nervous. And then I was astonished by how other, you know, some other memoirists were sort of, 
you know, who I don't want to name, who, who, who in their books plainly, you know, are recreating dialogue from when they're three or four years old and things like that, came out and publicly were flagellating James Fry for, for cooking his own book. Right. I was amazed by it because if you've ever written memoir, and you know, and I've I've, I've done too, you you know that you're you're you you have no choice but to construct some connective material in certain places to get ideas across and to get to the next place and to get to the next scene and to to, to you know to make the story coherent and to make the the, the personalities come alive. You have to do that. Well, yeah, um, and it's like and it's like too like unless you're working from really well. Uh, documented source material, like my memory is so bad that like uh, you know I've sat down and tried to write memoiry stuff before, and I'm just think I'm sitting there thinking to myself like I have no idea if this is true. You know, like, I just <laughs> well, don't. It's amazing. I, just, I don't have the recall. I in my my last book, In Boy Alone, which is a book about my younger brother, my autistic younger brother Noah. Uh, you know, my my father had written three books about our family. Um, they were all published. A Child Called Noah, which was the first of them, did quite well. And my brother had become sort of a very famous uh, autistic person in the 70s, maybe one of the most famous autistic kids uh, of that period. And so I actually had, and, and these books were basically diaries of my, of my uh, childhood because, you know, it was about our family and my father took his diaries and sort of repurposed them into these books. And so I had this actual chronology of my childhood that I was looking at while I was doing my book. And it's amazing how, how often... You know, my memories diverged from what my father was, 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 had written down. And his, his diaries in theory are contemporaneous with the events, so therefore it, the, usually by the standards of, 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 uh, of journalistic accuracy measurement, contemporaneous accounts are given more weight than retrospective accounts, than, than, than memory accounts, right? In, the, in a courtroom, uh, any contemporaneous account has more, has, has more relevance than, or more validity than, some, than hearsay being recalled later. Um, yet, so, sometimes my my father's account so differed from what I was remembering that I you know that I would uh, you know that I, that I would ask him I would actually I, I, you know I, I said what's going on this is that he said oh you know when we were doing uh, the you know the Noah books there would be periods where there wasn't that much going on so I would take some entries from other parts and put them in those days so it seemed like there was more going on in that period so I was like oh great so even in my this this thing that's about my own childhood, where I can where I'm trying to reconstruct my own childhood through this these records and through my memories, it turns out some something's been cooked in there, <laughs> and then and then even more confusing, there would be stuff that I was sure I remembered with like incredible precision and incredible incredible vividness, and I would, I was going back and rereading his books, and I would come upon that memory written word for word in my father's books. And realize that no, I was I didn't remember it. I actually had read it in his book right. years ago, and that had become a memory of mine. Right. So I became yeah. So I, I realized that memory is so inherently flawed and so inherently inaccurate that to say it has any more weight or validity than a constructed narrative, you know. And, and now we're getting a bit too academic for my liking, but. To, to, you know, it, it, it's actually a hard argument to make, especially when you get into the neuroscience of it, and you realize that every time you access a memory, basically a, a, a sort of a, a, a cluster of neurons or a group of neurons is firing. All these cells are firing in your brain, and those, the, the, those, those cells are your memory, in effect. 
but each time you access the memory, a different group of neurons fires. It's slightly different each time. So each time you access a memory, you're also changing it a little. That's just how brain function is. So the accuracy of memory is, 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 is not only is, is it dubious, it's also, from a neurological perspective, impossible. Right. Meaning your memory shifts naturally over time. It just starts to change in grades because you don't, your, your brain doesn't fire the same neuronal cluster every time. So it's a really interesting discussion. I mean, that said, I think we all know when we're when we feel like we're being had. Well, no, and it's, like, it's like it's just. I think I think what I'm like advocating is like you know when you say memoir, that's of course correct. Like that's sort of like the the blended genre. I just wish that there were more uh, descriptive honesty. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm almost. I think I'm almost like dreaming of a genre that requires like multiple sentences to describe it. Like this is journalism with some. Uh, fabrication right. included for the purposes of artistic, you know, like right, you right. See what I'm saying I'm driving at. It just feels like yeah, it yeah. just feels well, like in, we're not in, honest about it. You know, in, in Japan they do have that. It's funny. In Japan they have novels. In Japan they have fiction, nonfiction. There's categories like tampon shotsets. I think it is like first person story. They call it sort of like memoir. It's first person story. It's an I story, and it's understood that this first person story is what it is. It's just someone's version of things, and you can take that for what it's worth i like that um, the I yeah story, i mean the and, and, I story the i story and i think and, and and i think that's what i mean i think that's what memoir you know really should be but that said there's something very powerful when we read a memoir when we read primo levy uh you know this describing his his, you know, his experience in auschwitz if we felt in some way that he wasn't being as truthful as he could be, that would definitely detract from the power of that, of, of that reading experience. Right. So there's, cer- there's certain times when a hundred, you know, being able to trust the author to, to be as accurate as he can be really matters and makes the reading experience more powerful. So it's a strange thing. Like, you know, we can be cavalier, and, and, I'm, very, and I, I'm very cavalier about... Uh, you know, the, what the story is for the story to decide, and I trust the story, and I just want to be entertained. But that said, there's instances where I have to say, well, wait a second. Sometimes I do want to believe that what I'm reading is the absolute truth. Right. And like, or, or as close to the truth as it can be. So, you know, I want to have my cake and eat it, too. And, and that's not really fair. So, you know, really, there's, there's a lot of ways to look at this. I, I just never think it's as cut and dried as the facts police want it to be. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and, okay. and that's what sort of emerged. The Internet has allowed the emergence of like a larger uh, uh, contingent of sort of journalism police who are sort of running around trying to bust people for sort of, you know, when it's an important crime, that's one thing. When it's a trivial crime, you know, I just don't care. And I feel like there's, there's some, you know, there, there's a tendency now to try to find, you know, these factual inaccuracy and things to discredit the writer. And I'm not sure how that's really benefiting uh you know any cause yeah well so how did you get into all this how did you get into journalism like tell me a little bit about uh your background and your career and stuff yeah i i grew up in california uh, born in japan grew up in california went to palisades high school came back east to go to college uh at, at sarah lawrence college um after college i i went i, I went back to japan so where wh- why were you born in japan Oh, I'm half Japanese. My mom is Japanese and my, and my dad's American. Okay. Uh, so I was born in Kobe, Japan. Uh, lived there just when I was a you know, baby child. Came back to uh, 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 America 
uh, and then as soon as I was sort of old enough to, which was for me right after college or, or shortly after college, I went back to Japan uh, where I was fortunate enough to get a job at a uh, daily newspaper, uh, the Asahi Evening News, which was the English language version of a Japanese newspaper. And the place was kind of a joke, but it was it was a good place for me in that I was eager and, and I wanted to write and, and they would let me write almost anything I wanted. Um, so, you know, it's kind of one of these places where after a few months, you know, I was writing, you know, the book reviews, the movie reviews, I had a column, I'm doing front page stories on, you know, Dan Quayle coming to visit Japan or, you know, or Dick Cheney came to visit Japan. I mean, so I would, I would, you know, I, I, so it was a place where if you wanted to write, you could fill up the newspaper. And so I began to do, I mean, I remember, I, I think I published like a whole broadside page review of like a Saul Bellow novella. Um, you know, it's like stuff like that. So I could really, I could just really write anything I wanted. So that was a great job for me. Uh, and and uh, I mean, it's difficult because an afternoon paper. So uh, you have to, and the afternoon paper would close around noon. So you have to be in the office really early to file stories. But it was it was great for me, and it was a, you know great first kind of job in journalism. And then uh, uh, I got a, I got a job at something called the Tokyo Journal, where I was the managing editor, and that was a monthly English language uh, city paper news uh, magazine. And uh, learned a lot there, editing people. Uh, and then from there, I got into, uh, and I was always writing. And then from there, I just began writing for American magazines. I was very lucky in that the world was very interested in Japan at that point, or the U.S. was very interested in Japan. They were like sort of when looking was back. This? When was this? This was like what? The... This is like the this is like the early nineties. Yeah. And and looking back, it's almost like quaint the notion that you know Japan was seen as. As, as this great global threat that Americans were worried about, a Japanese takeover. Because I mean, that seems almost pleasant now compared to the various other prospects of, of, <laughs> of who, who's going to take over, who's going to take over the earth. Um, but uh, so there was this great interest in Japan, and, and no one was really. I mean, there were everyone had bureaus over there, all the big American publications. I mean, Tokyo was 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 then a very important international uh, uh, posting, but nobody was covering or. or Nobody was really writing about sort of the Japanese subcultures and youth culture and and criminal cultures and 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 pop cultures and all these these other things. The Japanese story then was like this economic story, or like this business story, or like this trade dispute story. And so, I just began writing about you know motorcycle gangs and porn stars and 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 rock bands and and you know criminals, yakuza, speed dealers, and 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 different just little subculture groups, mainly people I knew. Uh, you know, I was I was young. I was in, in my tw- you know early twenties, and 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 these were uh, just people I sort of knew from going out, and so I just began writing their stories, and I was able to get those stories into like, uh, you know, good American magazines like you know, Details and the New York Times Magazine published my stuff, and and Vogue and and just and and Wired and The Nation, and also I was, I was able to I was kind of able to to sort of use this weird niche. That I found and and publish these these articles in American magazines and 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 then get them to take a chance on me because they weren't really getting this stuff from anywhere else. How, how well and, con- how well connected were you? Like was it was it a matter of like knowing somebody who knew somebody, or were you like literally just querying somebody out of the blue and getting yeses? Thank, well, well, thank God the fax machine was invented. Uh, because before that, I don't know how you do it. No, I had a fax machine. It, with Tokyo Journal, we had a fax machine, and, and I used to send out 
you know, like 20 faxes a day to like, I would, I would call New York, you know, the time difference was like 12 hours. So yeah, cold call an editor, maybe get his assistant, her assistant, and just say, hey, this is, you know, Carl Tower Greenfield calling from Tokyo. I'd love to uh, pitch a story. What's your fax number? Get the fax number and then, and then just send in these crazy query letters that I had written, which were like complete fabrication. The queries were just like scenes I constructed out of whole cloth, like just these crazy visions of these, you know, gangsters, you know, chopping up a kilo of coke or something in the, you know, in a Tokyo nightclub. <laughs> and I would, send, I would send in these crazy things, and they were really exciting. I mean, they looked great. And so I would get magazine editors interested and, and, and get them to assign stories, and I would I'd do these stories. And that was sort of my, my entree into it was, was, uh, I, I, was write, I was writing about this exotic country that people happened to, to be uh, taken with at that point. And uh, and that was that became my book. That became Speed Drives. Okay, so and now I, what about these query letters? I want to stop you just because I feel like my listeners might be interested in this, and I'm not sure if the approach that you were using back then via fax is even applicable now in the age of the you know email and everything else. But um, you know, I, it's a it's a common question for writers. Like, what makes a good query letter? Like, what was your approach? Like, uh, I'll tell you what my general instinct is: is that you have to be pretty succinct. Um, because people are busy, you know, you'd obviously don't want to send somebody like a five page query letter that they're never going to read. But, um, just yeah, what, yeah, that's what, right. What, what was working for you? You know what I'm saying? What was your, I, I would, I would send probably about a page and it would be like literally if Sam was pitching a story about, uh, about the, the Yakuza or something, then, you know, Japanese organized crime, I would just basically, you know, dream up the, the sexiest, coolest scene of the coolest young gangsters ever in the history of Japan <laughs> and, and just write that and just, you know, act like this was real. Or, but it was so plainly not real, but it was just, this, you know, because if, if anyone knew this much about any important Japanese gangsters, why would they be pitching a magazine article to details? You know what I mean? But, but that, I would just write these crazy scenes, these fantastical scenes, and send them, and and editor, and 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 uh, you know, send, and and people would bite because it just it sounded so great. I mean, I saw it like I'm, I'm like I'm trying to pitch a movie, basically. Uh, I'm just trying to you know to entice someone to want to read the next page, and so the query would just be really this you know incredibly vivid uh, little character sketch of 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 or scene of, of, of whatever it was I was trying to sell the story about. And, they, and these, the, people in the, the people in the scene were actual people you knew, or were these pure fabrications? I think they were pure fabrications, <laughs> I believe. I believe I was just trying to get the subject. I was like trying to sell the subject. And, and, and you got to remember, I mean, people in America don't know anything about anything. And so if you're trying to pitch a story about the Japanese organized crime, you would... Basically, I would be like, I'm gonna, it would almost be like, I would take a scene from Goodfellas and just dress everybody differently, <laughs> and and you know have them driving different kind of cars. But but it would be this, it, so so it would be like this myth, this 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 myth that the anyone could recognize, like, oh, this is a gangster myth. Only it's like a little different, and that's what makes it fun. Right. You know, just like, and and so that was that's sort of what I was doing, and I just did that over and over again, and and uh, and I wrote some good stories out of it. I mean, then I would have to actually go and find the story, and then a couple of times I did have the editor say, "Wait a second, this isn't the thing you sent us. This is not nearly as you know amazing as as that query letter," and that did happen to me. And then and sometimes I have editors kill stories, 
uh, because the story that I gave them wasn't as fantastic <laughs> as, as, as the pitch. Um, but, uh, but every story that was killed, I eventually published somewhere. Um, and back then, I was also writing a lot for British magazines. And you could do the same story for an American magazine as you would do for a British magazine. So you could sell a story to, like, to details and then sell that same story to like Arena or The Face or whatever. These cool British magazines were around back then. So how, um, did, and then how, you, how did you do that? How did you manage to get into British magazines? Like it sounds like you were pretty good at hustling. And uh, well, there was this there was this newsstand in 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 Roppongi near where I lived in Tokyo, called the Aoyama Book Center (ABC). And I used to just go, and, and because it's Tokyo, your magazines are coming from all over the world, and they're all just given equal you know, sort of equal placement on the newsstand. Here's British Esquire, here's American Esquire, here's British GQ, here's American GQ. Here's a, so you would, I would pick up, be as likely to pick up a British magazine as an American magazine because, I don't know, whatever, the cover image or the cover line, something drew my attention. So you, I was as aware of British magazines as I, as I was of American magazines at that point just because of, of, of the international nature of, of, of Tokyo. And I think that's why I got this idea to to deal with British magazines. And then I'm trying to remember that. Also, like, this photographer came from details to shoot this story. Uh, this, he was a German photographer from London. And he came to shoot this story. And he said, oh, you should talk to this guy at Arena magazine, Dylan Jones or something. He'd be interested in you guys, you know. And so so I just kind of heard about it that way. But but and And part of it was the time difference with England was a little better than the time difference with America, like cause America, you kind of had to be up until like midnight or 10 o'clock to, to uh, talk to somebody in New York, whereas in, in London around 6 p.m. Tokyo time, people in London were getting into the office. So, you know, you kind of, yeah, I was, you know, I, I was, I was a hustler. I was very aggressive, uh, very cocky and, but just working it. And, and I, I think the same thing still applies to some extent. I mean, I, I imagine, I wonder if in the era of the, of the internet, with uh, email, whether editors are just so inundated with solicitations from freelance writers that they just don't even look at them anymore. You know, because I think the whole thing about the facts was, and, and getting the facts numbers required a little bit of kind of a con job on the assistant of who you were and what you were doing, you know, because they didn't want to give out their boss's fax numbers that easily. And so, um, it, so and, and I guess offices didn't have that many fax machines. And so, it, it was it was it was fortunate for me that that the facts existed because I could send all these things in. I couldn't imagine doing that all by mail. Like how it would just take months and months to get everything going, get anything going. But I don't know if it's the same if it's the same way now. I know when I pitch stories now to editors, I, I just send them like two lines, you know. But that's but mostly people know me a little bit now, so it's a little easier. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I just send a couple lines and say, what about this guy? What about this? the other thing is that the type of story that magazines do is completely different. It used to be magazines would do a subculture story and it would just be this group of kids in God knows where doing something fucking weird. And whether they're in Japan, whether they were in California, whether they were in, you know, Death Valley, you would just have these subculture stories and every magazine did them, Esquire and, and Rolling Stone and details and so forth. And now the subculture story is pretty much over. Uh, because any subculture is, is is already like a reality show as soon as you're even aware it exists. I mean, like, you know, Jersey Shore essentially is like one, I feel like it's like one New York Magazine story blown up into an entire multi-season 
MTV franchise. Right. Yeah, I you can know, see, whereas, I can see that. Yeah, whereas these things just used to be magazine articles. Saturday Night Fever, it was a magazine article, you know, which, by the way, he later admitted that he had completely fabricated. Hmm. Um, but, and it was a great article, and it was a great movie. But, but the, uh, so I, I think it's I mean, part of the change is that magazines basically are running like, now it's like ideas, pieces, or profiles. I mean, that's pretty much it. So that's all I ever do. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, what about heroes of yours journalistically? Like, who are some of your uh, predecessors who you uh, tried to emulate, like, especially earlier in your career, you know? I, I mean, I, you know, the, the obvious, I mean, the same ones everyone else, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, uh, and then, you know, and then certain travel writers, uh, Kapuczynski probably was the one that I looked at as being somehow perfectly embodying the the sort of literary qualities that I wanted and then also imparting this this very powerful idea of the state or country or place that he's writing about. Not necessarily, as it turns out later, he wasn't factually very accurate or concerned with that, but he just was so evocative of, of, the, of the cultures that he was describing and, or, or describing or living in that I always read him as being sort of the master of that kind of, of fictional, non-fiction sort of travel narrative. Um, so yeah, Kapuczynski and hey, Bruce Chatwin, those kind of guys. I mean, anyone who is sort of, I mean, I always like writers who are a little bit on the edge of, uh, you know, are, is, are, like, is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? I, I, I was always kind of drawn to that. And then what about, what about, um, you know, when you speak about writers who are on, or being drawn to writers who are on the edge, whether it's like in terms of, uh, you know, their aesthetic choices, Volman, William Volman, that would be a big one who I forgot to mention. Yeah, yeah. But so, do you also? I mean, it's, I mean, I've read, uh, you know, some some stuff about you online. It sounds like you also, uh, you know, were sort of drawn to living on the edge with regard to, um, you know, like uh, personal behavior, whether it's like drug use or alcohol or whatever it would be. Um, you know, especially earlier in your career, like how how big of a factor was that for you? I think those are just personal demons. I mean, those, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, I, was, I mean, I was a, a, a drug addict for years, and, and I think that was, but I, I, that really didn't have anything to do with, with, uh, with being a writer. If anything, it just screwed me up being a writer. But I mean, uh, did, but I guess what I'm asking is, like, did, did like, you know, any of your uh, forebears, like, you know, like Hunter Thompson, for example, like, like, did that example, was that something you were drawn to and, like, tried to emulate, or did it come about? No, I just, I just like getting high. <laughs> I just really like getting high, and and so and and I found myself in, uh, you know, spending time in countries with where where there's relatively easy access to, to you know, to, to certain opiates, and 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 there were incredibly lax pharmaceutical laws, so you could go into pharmacies and get, you know, <laughs> wide a wide range of drugs, and I think that that was probably the, uh, uh, I think that was just just that was just me. There's no nothing literary about it. It's just it's just somebody who who, who likes the the feeling brought on by by certain chemicals. So, what was your drug of choice, or were there multiple? When it, it spanned, but by by the end, pretty much opiates. Okay, okay, and then like, but I mean, there was some speed in there as well, correct? Or you, and you've written? Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, written, sure. No, written, no, the, written there was a stretch. Yeah, yeah, there was a stretch. There was a stretch of uh, of, uh, of 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 Matthews too. Not not so not so long that my teeth ever rotted or anything. So you had you had the ability to sort of pull yourself back, like you always had like one toe in reality, essentially. Or? Mm, I, I I think so, but I did have to go to treat. You know, I did have to go to rehab. 
Oh, you did. Okay. So, oh yeah, yeah. No, no. I, 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 I stayed clean after that. I was clean for uh, over a decade. Just no, you know, no. Now I, I drink a little bit again, but I, I mean, at that point, I was. To, I, I didn't. I didn't drink or take a drug for eleven years. What was the? After what was that. the? Was there an instance or like a bottom that you hit that you that finally sent you into rehab, or did you just get tired? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was. Yeah, I mean, there was. There was a. Uh, trying to remember. I, 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 this, I guess my, I wrote about this in my second book. I think standard deviations is, is about my sort of. That's my my dissolute memoir. Um, I think. I think for me. Looking back, and, and again, we've already discussed how flawed recollection is, but it seems to me that what I began noticing was, was that I, was, I wasn't writing very well. And, and I think so I felt that I was, my, my, my drug use had in, negatively impacted whatever meager talents I had. And, and I sort of did this calculation that like maybe there's some people who can get away with being drunk or being high and, and, and still write well. I, I'm not one of those people. I don't have the talent that I can afford to waste any of it or, or not have all my faculties when I sit down to write. And that's just me. So I think that was, that was a, a big part of it was realizing, like, if I'm, if I'm going to get anywhere as a writer, I have to knock it off because right. it's just too hard. It's just too hard. You well, know, writing, writing is, is hard enough. You really don't need to, to handicap yourself. Well, and it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of writers these days, especially uh, at least experiment with pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, and, and when I say pharmaceuticals, I, I mean that in like a, a, a literal way. We're talking like prescription meds, not, not just like drugs in general, but I feel like the use of prescription meds like Adderall or... Well, that's the big one, right? Yeah, the, the ADD medications. Yeah, the ADD medications, like almost, and, and it's not only just in writing, but, you know, you read about this stuff in magazines and how... Um, you know, really competitive uh, university settings are sort of like prime, prime ground for this sort of abuse where like kids are taking uh, these drugs as a way to get an edge so they can stay up later and concentrate longer and, you know, somehow outperform their peers. And like, I, you know, there's a part of me that's sort of drawn to that. Like, wow, what if I, because I've never taken it. Like, what, what, what would happen to me and my work? And, you know, even if it were just for one book, if I did this, would it somehow give me some sort of superhuman focus or something, or would it just make the writing? Suck? I, I, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, it depends on what your output is normally. I mean, if you're, I mean, I, I can't, I really can't write more than a thousand words a day, anyway, and and I do that in probably an hour or two. So, I mean, I don't need any more focus than that. Um, the tricky thing as a fiction writer is that drugs tend to occupy the subconscious. That's why they feel so good. They make you subconsciously feel a little better about things than you would otherwise. And if you're a fiction writer, you depend on your subconscious. Your subconscious is making the connections that your conscious isn't making. It has to be. I mean, that's, your subconscious tells you to put you know, some weird character in, in, in this earlier chapter that only later... 100 pages later, do you realize you need? There's a, per, there's a reason that person's in the book. And I believe that if you're on narcotics and you're on drugs, your subconscious is not going to do that work for you. So it, I think writing becomes a much more conscious project. It becomes a very, you're, you're, it's, it's basically what your, what your consciousness comes up with then becomes all the ammunition you have. You no longer have the subconscious working for you. Um, so I, I think it's risky. I think it's very risky because I think you're, you're, like I said, it's hard enough. You don't want to handicap yourself. 
you don't want to take away one of your weapons, which is the creative process of writing fiction. You're you're relying on your subconscious to do a lot of your work. Well, and it's also it also just seems like a, a kind of a game of diminishing returns. Like it might work once, you know, like like or, or well, twice. Like maybe you can like wait, wait, work. Don't knock something working once. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's like you know, you think about like somebody getting really stoned and writing like an amazing screenplay or something. It happens. Yeah, it, it can happen. So. And and one is a hell of a lot more than zero, right? Right. So you know, so I don't know. So that's why I don't I don't judge it. Like I said, I just figured it out for me. It doesn't work. Whatever you know, whatever pickles your pickle. That's you know, that's your business. Well, but it's um, inter- it's um, interesting too that like you had writing as you know, it sounds like was uh, clearly your priority. Like a lot of people, I think, who get. Um, lost in drug abuse or whatever don't necessarily have something like writing that they can use to either measure um, where they are, you know, or they don't have something that they're passionate enough about to 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 change. Do you know what I'm saying? It sounds like writing saved you in a way or, or helped you sort of like pull yourself back. Except that in the larger sense, it pretty much ruins you. I mean, besides, besides the fact that it's a fucked up way to spend your life, yeah, in, within, inside of it, there's little patches where maybe it can, you know, it can get you through a little bit of a rough patch, but as a whole, it's a hard life. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the joke. I mean, in terms of writing fiction, that's the joke. When I saw, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get a short story published until 2006, and it was pretty much the first story I wrote, and I gave it to to the Paris Review. I gave it to, to Philip Gray, which is because they had published nonfiction of mine. And uh, and they published it, and I was like, oh, this is fantastic! It's uh, you know, it's 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 look how easy it is. You just write a story, and they publish it, and they pay you. And then uh, like uh, I, I you know later I realized like you know it was it's almost like a a curse because it made me it made me sort of pursue this thing, which was actually a much harder way to 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 make a living, get published, everything. I mean, everything about fiction is a lot harder than nonfiction in terms of getting stuff published. So. So it's 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 you know it's 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 a hard it's a very hard life and and the, someone giving you a break is actually not giving you a break they're actually kind of <laughs> fucking you over <laughs> in, well, that, just, just, in that you think it's going to work well yeah and, and just getting people to read anything like you know like and uh, I think you've said this before uh, in interviews or whatever but it's like you know you're oh, like the people that you that are actually in the book that you know that are somehow like models for characters or even like. You know, one for one. Models. I've, I have. I've, there have been people I've written about in books, nonfiction, real people <laughs> who the books about them, and they can't be fucked to read it. Yeah. So, so it's... no, no, getting anyone to read is impossible. So, forget getting anyone to read a novel, which is what I'm trying to do now. I feel like it's really a, uh, a it's just just a hopeless undertaking. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so let's because I feel the same way. I feel like it's almost like it's it's what Sisyphean. It's silly. It's a. Uh, super discouraging but it does sometimes happen and certain writers do somehow generate this like mass uh interest and especially on like the the literary side of the ledger you know as opposed to like popular fiction or genre fiction or whatever which sometimes has um a little bit easier go of it like what do you think it is that makes like do you have any sense of why a certain book or a certain author is able to catch on um while someone else whose work is of um, a really high quality, you know what I'm saying? Is for for whatever reason doesn't find an audience. Like, can can you suss that out at all, or is it just some big mystery? No, it's, I, I, it's, it's, I really think it's luck. I really do. I know that's not, and that, that's coming from someone who's been pretty unlucky. So of course I would think it's luck. 
but yeah, I, I just think it's like I think certain books at a certain time, you know, the 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 the, 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 the for whatever reason the timing is right. They get the right. It falls into the right hands. That person writes the right review. Dot, 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 dot. You know, this this is confluence of lucky events happens, and then suddenly the book takes off and it becomes a thing. But for the vast majority of, of books, we know that doesn't happen. Um, and nobody is reading all these books to ascertain, you know, whether this is indeed a meritocracy. We assume it's not a meritocracy. So if it's not a meritocracy, what is it all based on? Uh, it it's it's based on on some strange luck that a certain book has or a certain person has and, and and another book won't have you know so and you can't let it and 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 the one thing you can't do is you can't let the idea of what kind of book seems to be getting luckier than other books right oh like you look at these books about this female heroin and you know in peril and that that i see sort of go through and look at it and say oh why can't i just do this I, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can recreate a sort of you can. I don't think you can recreate luck. I think it's just you got to write the book you're going to write, and then and then hope that that you get lucky. And that's why I just say basically it's writing. You're spending years of your life writing a lottery ticket. That's what you're doing. And and the, and there's not you know. And, but with that said, there is some fundamental uh, urge or desire or 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 drive to to communicate to share. Uh, to get feedback. It's what we all want somehow. We're all competing for each other's ears. We all want each other's attention somehow. And it just happens that as writers, you've chosen sort of, the, you know, as fiction writers, you've chosen one of the least efficient possible means of doing that, um, next to poetry, perhaps. So, you know, so we're all laboring, for, we're all somehow laboring for, 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 for to have to be heard. And most of us aren't being heard. <laughs> most and of us so, won't be heard. Most of us won't be heard. And so do you feel like, uh, let's say that you get lucky. Let's say that things happen cosmically for you, and this book takes off, and suddenly uh, you know, you're a literary darling, and your books are selling millions of copies, and like, the whole dream unfolds. For you or for anyone that has this happen to them, do you think that there's an obligation? Is there any obligation on the part of somebody who does get that luck to then turn around to the, the community of writers and try to somehow uh, help or share the wealth? Like, do, you sense, do you feel a sense of obligation, or is it basically just every man for himself, and if it happens, go have fun and enjoy it? Or do you I, know, well, I, what, I don't understand what form the obligation would, would I don't know. It's just, would I mean, entail. It, I mean, it just would seemed, it be giving i mean would it be giving advice nobody wants that yeah i don't know i don't know what it would be i just i guess i'm just wondering like i mean if it really does come down to this sort of like uh unnameable and uh you know uh, unpredictable confluence of events like if that were to happen for me uh I, you know just knowing the way that i'm made up like i would probably feel guilty about it <laughs> uh i'm catholic or something i think i would well i think i think i think what what i've noticed happening to people who, who I've known or something like this happens to. Um, I think the best of them just look at you and shrug and say, I was lucky. Um, and then they can break down, here are the three lucky things that happened to me in the way to my book becoming a bestseller or whatever. And I think the, the, the worst of us suddenly go from thinking it's all a matter of luck to believing there was something inherently great about them right. that made this all happen. That it is a meritocracy and the very best rises up, and that's why my book of course, was on the front of the New York Times and da 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 da, da. all this other stuff happened. So, I, I mean, I think it, it, it really comes down to what your sort of 
base character really is. <laughs> and that, that's how you'll be when you're a success as well. Um, you know, I, I think there is something different about, you know, if it happens when you're in your 50s or it happens when you're in your 20s. I mean, I think that's just different. It's just different. You know a little more about life when you're a little older. and You know, you've, 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 you've seen a bit more and you know that this thing bounces different ways. Um, and then forget it when you're even older, when you're my dad's age and he's in his 80s. I mean, you know, I think everything even takes on you know, less rhyme or reason as to why things happen. Uh, and, and you don't know how things are going to turn out. Something that seems fantastically fortunate to happen to someone, it, it, you know, under 25, you, you could realize only later, years later, that was the worst thing that could have happened to that person. Right. You know, that they were exactly the person who could not handle that type of success. And they're dead by the time they're 35 or 40. You know, so so you just don't know. The thing you wish for, look, most most people don't get the thing they wish for all the time. I've never gotten the thing I wish for. I want all that good stuff. We, I want all the cash and prizes. Everybody does. You know, but at the same time, uh, I sort of realized a couple of years ago, I think, that even if, if you gave me sort of, I mean, what, how, what about my life would really change if something fantastically wonderful happened with Triburbia or whatever? Well, I suppose I'd get more money for my next book. Um, I get a bigger advance, but that's kind of it. I would still be just writing my next book. I would still just be working on my next thing. Um, and so, in a sense, it's 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 sort of just like playing ping pong. I mean, that's all it really is, is. Is what do you get when you win a game of ping pong? You just get to play another game. That's what you get. So you write a book, it does well. You you get to write another book. If you, all you hope is that your book does well enough or that you can convince somebody to take another chance on you so you can do it again. You know, that's, that's really what it is. So, so you know, I don't know. I've, look, I, I have no idea how to manage a career. I've done a terrible job of it. And, and considering, you know, but I still feel lucky in terms of I've gotten some good stuff. But I've not, I haven't done a great job. Uh, you know, as a, as a careerist at all, I've traveled around too much. I didn't. I should have just stayed in New York and played that game and gotten to know more people and gotten better connections and done all those things that that you're supposed to do. But I'm too sort of antisocial myself to kind of make to play that connection game in the way that you sort of have to. Well, but it sounds. Um, but it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I look at your bio and I think to myself, God, this guy's done so much. You know, you look at just the list of magazines you've written for, the places that you've lived. Um, you know, th- that, appe- then, that appeals to me, like, I, I guess we might be similar, but that just appeals to me way more than, you know, sitting around, uh, in New York or any city for that matter. And, and trying to like network my way up. Do you know what I'm saying? That sounds awful. Well, oh yeah. Well, yeah, I, I agree. But also if you look at someone who's written for too many magazines and gone too many places, you look at him and say, wow, that guy's really had the hustle to make a buck. <laughs> so whenever you see a writer who's, who's, who's just written for too many magazines and too many things, they're like, that guy has been hustling. <laughs> well, a lot, of, <laughs> you know? a lot of people these days are, you know. But Yeah, yeah. So it's really just like, you know, there's a guy who's been working for his, you know, for his daily bread. Um, well, and but, what, uh, what, about, what about like, uh, you know, because it brings up interesting questions because, you know, you have worked for like establishment journalism. Like writing for Time magazine is about as establishment as it gets in the American press um, or New York Times magazine, you know. And then that's not necessarily said um, – uh, to diminish them in any way that's just a, a, you know that just seems to be the fact but then at the same time uh you know you've published with indie presses and you've sort of operated in that realm as well so you've sort of you know crossed from world to world a little bit like can you talk about that like has it been instructive in any way you know or is it is it pretty much the same but just on different um you know levels of scale well i mean i uh, my 
mantra has always been that I'll, I'll play ball pretty much with anyone who played ball with me. And when it comes to when it came to to in journalism, when I could get a job at Time and become a, a writer at Time Magazine at that, at that time in my life, that's what I, that's fine. I'll go do that. Sure. That sounds that sounds fun for me or interesting or different or I'm going to learn something. I learned a shitload. I learned a ton writing for Time. What did you I, learn? I, I, I learned how to express things concisely. I learned how to crunch down exposition to extract what was the most important piece of it. I learned how to, to give information in a pleasing and entertaining manner. Uh, I learned when you, you, you know, when, when, when to stop giving information and when to start uh, moving the story forward again. I learned about pacing. Uh, but again, the biggest thing is I just learned how to explain things. I learned how to explain stuff, and not in a boring way, not in an academic way, but in a way that was sort of pleasing to the eye. And that's a knack that serves you very well in fiction. Just not, not being afraid to just step in and say, here's who this guy is, and here's his background, here's what he did. And, and that allows you in fiction to, to give much more history, to move through time in a different way. Uh, you can move through time, you can move through years if you have to, if you know how to, vary, you know how to skillfully enough explain those years. So yeah, no, I want to stop you there because this is something that like I've sort of learned by trial and error through the years in my own work, but like I'm always as a reader um extremely impressed whenever I see an, a, a very deft time transition in fiction or non-fiction for that matter. But when somebody jumps years or, you know, just shifts time in a significant way but does it subtly just from like paragraph to paragraph, uh, that's the kind of thing I sort of like clap for in my brain. Is that? Yeah, it's it, because it's hard to do. It's really because hard to it, do. because there's times when you yeah, and 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 I I had to learn that at at somehow I learned that at Time Magazine. I learned to be confident in 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 making those kind of choices and doing that kind of work. Um, and and I don't think I mean I think it's something you have to learn in a way. I mean I think and and learning how to you know and, and so. I was that's it, Time Magazine taught me a lot about writing. Taught me a lot about writing that I use in in writing fiction, all the time. It taught me sometimes don't be afraid to be obvious, you know. Don't fucking show. Tell me, you know. Don't just do some telling here. Right. Um. And and all that kind of stuff. I mean that was that was important stuff. And so, I always tell people and 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 this goes to your point about the indie press world, which it tends to be more populated by MFA types. Um, it's much more sort of, it seems to be, it seems to live more in the, the MFA world. Um, and that's a world where there's very little crossover into, uh, into journalism, into mainstream journalism, into mainstream writing. And I think it's, it's something I always tell people that, you know, this is, I mean, the, the, one of the best things you can do is, is get a job writing stuff that you don't, really care that much about because you're going to learn an awful lot about just the craft of writing and and what works and what doesn't work and you're not emotionally invested in it you're not emotionally sort of you know in, in involved in this story where you know this really cool thing that you love really doesn't make any fucking sense in the story but you want to leave it in there because it's yours when you're writing a story for time magazine you have no or i didn't have much emotional investment in any of it so i could just be ruthless about this is slowing me down out this is a little boring out well, right, you and, know, and, and if you if you didn't do it, then your editor most likely was going to. So it's not like you could get too attached anyway, right? Right, right. 
right, exactly. And so, but there's something very good about that, and it makes you more rigorous. Um, in, ter- in terms of the small presses and stuff, I mean, you know, the, I, I just those are the people who publish short stories. Right. So if if I, if I want to publish short stories, I was going to have to deal with some with some small presses. I mean, but I didn't know anybody in that world, so it's funny. There was a, a newsstand uh, on Broadway, and it's like Broadway, it was like Broadway and Howard or Broadway and Broadway, I think it was like Broadway and Howard. It's pretty pretty near Canal Street on on Broadway, not far from where my office used to be. And and I would just walk up there, and they had a lot of of, uh, of literary journals in there. I don't know why. They just had it was like these Bangladeshi guys who ran this newsstand, but there was just a ton of literary journals in there. So I would just go in there and and uh, you know grab two or three and and buy them and bring them home. And and I would just and, and obviously there were some that I'd heard of before, like the Canyon Review or whatever, but there were some that I just never heard of, but I would buy them and, and take them and, and read them. And this was, this was probably from 2006 to 2008 or so. I had a two-year period where I was reading a lot of, I began to read a lot of literary journals because I'd never read them before in my life. And I became, and, and that's how I began to send stories to magazines was I, would, I, would, I just began reading them and thinking about it and then just sending stories. So that's how you end up in some indie presses because, you know, I picked up a copy of the New York Tyrants and I looked at it and I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, and you're kind of just looking at it and you think, well, I could write for this. And so you'd send in a story. Um, and same thing with Hobart or whoever I, you know, wherever I was publishing. And, and so I think that was, that was, that's why is because I, I didn't know that much about literary journals. So I was trying to find out about them. So, so you, if you do that, you're going to end up writing for some, some small presses, some, some indie presses. So what about uh, like next steps? I mean, it seems like you're sort of transitioning uh, or at least partially transitioning into uh, a fiction career. Like, is that where you see yourself or you think it's always going to be a blend of journalism and fiction and nonfiction? Uh, like, will you continue on every front or are you trying to sort of narrow your, uh, your efforts down in some way? Well, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm always doing uh, nonfiction. I'm always doing journalism. I mean, mostly I, I have a contract with uh, Bloomberg Business Week, which is, you know, a really straight magazine. It's a good magazine, but it's a straight magazine. Um, no fiction. <laughs> and uh, so I, I write they for... A, a, they don't have a poetry section in Bloomberg? <laughs> well, they, 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 a, lot, a lot of poetry review they're, they're doing. The, uh, uh, no, so I, I do... Uh, so I write for them. Like, uh, this week, I'm, I'm, going, I'm doing a story for Playboy uh you know right now so i i keep doing the the journalism kind of that's that's sort of how i make make my money um and i have another i'm working on another novel i have another novel which is due i guess the contract is for june next year um cuz this triberbia was a two book deal yeah. um so so i have that and I'm, i guess i'm about halfway through and it you know it's at the part where it's feeling sort of disastrous and shitty and and like it's not going to work <laughs> it's a great place to be isn't it yeah, it's, but I, I mean, the, I mean, the one I've, I've written enough books where I know, okay, this is just part of it, and it either really is shitty or maybe it'll be okay. Um, but there's no reason to stop just because it feels shitty now. And then what about uh, uh, you know? And the other element of it is that you're you know, you're juggling all this different stuff, and you talked about how journalism had informed you, um, you know, in a variety of ways, like related to like the technical aspects of writing and compression and time transition and all that stuff. But uh, what you, we didn't uh, talk about is the the discipline that it probably has given you. You know, when you're working in a deadline uh, environment, oh, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff has got to be good for you when it comes to getting 
into the chair and actually writing the fiction, you know? Oh, I, yeah, I don't, I, I've never had writer's block or anything like that. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm not very sympathetic to writer's block as a plea for, for, uh, or as, as an explanation for, for not being productive. I, I see it as a failure of will. I mean, look, I can always sit down and write something. It may be shit, and it very often is, but I can always sit down and write it. And, and yeah, I think, you know, journal, when you're writing for the check, I mean, the good thing about journalism is that when you're writing for a paycheck, you you get over whatever your inhibitions are pretty quickly. Um, and and you know I'm I'm both fortunate in that I've you know I've written for a living for a long long time. I've been supporting myself at this for what 20 years or something. So I'm fortunate in that I've been doing that. Um, but but I'm unfortunate in that I think it's 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 removed me a little bit from from the, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know, from, from the, from the culture of literary writing, uh, you know, in, in America. And, and that's why I had to sort of undertake that investigation into the subject by buying literary journals and reading them. Um, and, and then, and then, and at the same time being amazed at how good so many stories were being amazed at how, you know, how much good writing there is going on that I previously didn't really know about. Uh, and so for me, it's, it's sort of, it took me many years to get back to the place or to get to the place where I guess every MFA student is at when they finish grad school, which is they're very aware of this culture of this literary culture in America, such as it is, of the small magazines and, and HTML giant and all this stuff. Uh, you know, I just, I didn't know about it until I was much older. And so for me, it was it was it was a, both a revelation and 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 sort of a, a, exciting in that in that here was this whole world that I didn't know existed that I could now investigate and try to be a part of. Well, I could keep talking with you forever. Uh, it's been so fun to to hear your thoughts on all this stuff and to hear about your life and your career. And uh, I wish you all the best with uh, Triburbia, and I, I hope that uh, I hope that it breaks out for you. Thanks. All right, folks, there we go. That was Carl Taro Greenfeld. Go get his novel. It's called Triburbia. It is available now from Harper. You can find Carl online at carltarogreenfeld.com. You can find him on Twitter at Carl Taro, and he's on the Facebook, too. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy if you want to read my Twitter action. Uh, the show has a Facebook page, and if you would like to email me, write me a letter. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, closing thoughts, final things to say. Uh, I am still a little bit worried about this suspicious mole. It's bothering me. I don't know what this thing is. It's a growth of some kind. Life is fragile. Shit can happen. I hate Google. I'm never Googling anything ever again. Please remember that Henry Miller died of cardiovascular failure and that Ezra Pound once called Hitler, quote, a saint and a martyr, end quote. Thank you for listening, uh, everybody. I appreciate it. I'm grateful for all the support. Uh, I'm sorry I told you about my suspicious mole. I know I sound a little paranoid. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. We're going to get this thing sorted out. In the meantime, please uh, pray for me. <laughs>